Hello, Shimi Maji family. This is your host, Mark Karaki. This week, we have a groundbreaking episode for you. For the very first time, we have an international guest on the podcast, and this one is filled with valuable insights on one of the hottest domains in the technology world today. Samir Maski is our guest. He's a founder of Fuse Machines, which is a full-cycle artificial intelligence startup from New York. Fuse Machines provides AI as a service to mainly to the Fortune 500 companies in the US, while at the same time developing global AI talent through their AI micro degree program. Their mission as a company is to democratize AI by making it accessible to all those with an interest in the space. He is in Nairobi as part of the pre-launch to the local AI education program that will be provided with their local partner, Jenga School. In addition, on Friday, August 9th, between 6 and 8 p.m., Impact Africa Network will be hosting Samir for an intimate fireside chat at the M-Survey offices at Pine Tree Plaza, which is the same building that you will find in Nairobi Garage. Currently, the global demand for AI engineers is in the million, with supply lagging far behind. If you are interested in pursuing a career in this hot new field, you simply cannot afford to miss out on the M-Survey event on August 9th, 6 to 8 p.m. See you there. And enjoy the podcast. Hello, everybody. This is uh, the Chini Maji podcast brought to you by Impact Africa Network. Today, we have a special edition of the podcast. Uh, we have a special guest. Um, and I, I couldn't be more excited to have Mr. Samir Maski on the podcast today. You know what, Samir? You're the first full-blown foreigner on the podcast. <laughs> so, so, yeah, man. So, it's a first on both sides. This <laughs> is super cool. But um, yeah, Samir Maski is the founder and CEO of Fuse Machines uh, and Fuse Schools, and also associate professor at Columbia University. Adjunct associate. Adjunct professor. Okay, you got to get that right. <laughs> I was going to give you the full accolade. But, <laughs> but yeah, man, I mean, uh, Fuse Machines is based in New York, uh, AI services and education uh, startup uh, in the hottest, uh, I guess, space in in technology today and yeah. um so super excited to have you in the podcast uh you're obviously here and, and you know i'll let you kind of talk a little bit about why you're here and all that but uh our podcast is really for the local ecosystem what we aim to do with this is to kind of disseminate uh startup knowledge uh entrepreneurial knowledge and just kind of help people have an alternative uh path to understanding how you know, entrepreneurship works, the paths people take there so they can relate to that and kind of some of them are going through the same challenges and so on and so forth. So that's that's the core of the podcast, right? And, you know, we live in a global world, so experiences, you know, cross different borders and people can learn, you know, uh, yeah. from each other. So, yeah, I mean, Samir, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. And so I guess the first thing would be, why are you in Kenya? <laughs> <laughs> what brings you here? Uh, we are here to uh, open Fuse Machines AI School uh, in, in partnership with you guys, actually, right? right? Uh, with uh, Zenga, which is part of Impact Africa and so forth. Uh, so our belief is basically talent is everywhere. That's one of the core beliefs that we've started Fuse Machines with. Mm -hmm. uh, having taught at Columbia for many years and seeing that if we are able to provide same level of uh, learning experience from resources, from faculty, and so forth to the underserved communities uh, in developing world and also in the U.S., 
the students really shine. They are almost mm. equally capable as uh, some of my students at Columbia. Mm. So with that in mind, uh, we've started our mission of democratizing AI, democratizing AI education uh, by opening fused machines, by, by opening AI schools uh, around the world We're in partnership with local partners who would be running the schools. Uh, and uh, Nairobi is one of the places that we would want to start a school here. Uh, because of what I've heard of the ecosystem and the, the, the ability of students and so forth. Awesome. Yeah, that's great. So, <clears throat> yeah, again, welcome to Kenya. Thank you. Uh, welcome to Africa. Um, We're excited to have you. And I guess the best place probably to start is, you know, you know, your journey, right, to where you are today. So you're from Nepal yes. and went to school in the, the U.S. for university. So why don't you walk us through... That process, right? Uh, your starting point in Nepal, what that was like, uh, and then your journey to the U.S., and then your journey to, uh, I guess, fuse machines. That whole story it will be interesting to to kind of hear about that. Sure. Um, so I grew up in Nepal, mm -hmm. uh, and as we were driving here in the car, I was saying that Nepal looks so similar to Nairobi and Kathmandu. Right. right. Big parts of it. Um, so, so if you think about it, Kathmandu is very similar to Nairobi from mm. many different aspects. Mm. Um, and so I grew up there. I went to all the way up to high school. And when I was in high school, I started applying for, for colleges in the U.S. Mm -hmm. uh, I was only one of the few ones who applied. And uh, I was a decent student in high school. Um, I ended up getting full scholarships to a few colleges. Mm -hmm. So uh, you're, you're basically underselling yourself. <laughs> a little bit more than decent. <laughs> full scholarships. <laughs> yes. Uh, mm -hmm. I got full scholarships to a few, few colleges in the U.S. Mm -hmm. uh, and obviously being from a, a developing country like Nepal, you know, uh, it basically the only way to attend school in the U.S. where tuitions are very high is to have get full scholarship. Totally. Because Nepal's per capita is very, very low. Right. So we have something else in common. I also got, I also got a full scholarship to the States. Yeah. But I wasn't. I wasn't an A-plus student like you. Mine was athletic and academic. So That's know. pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, so we have another thing in common. That's great. Um, um, so yeah. We were, I was in a little colder area, I guess. I was up in Maine. <laughs> so when I first landed in Maine... I had no idea how cold it is. Hmm. So, did you even have a jacket? Or you I did have a jacket. But, but Kathmandu is also cold. It gets cold. Kathmandu is actually not bad. So hmm. when you hear about Nepal, you see, you imagine Mount these Everest. mountains, <laughs> Mount Everest, <laughs> snows. It must be cold all the time. And that's right? what I think. That's what everybody thinks. But that's not the case. Okay. Right? Nepal, uh, in a very short width of... Um, with distance, it goes from like a sea level to the highest mountains. Interesting. So it almost has three levels of mountains. Microclimates almost. Yeah, yeah. it is. It is. Uh, mm -hmm. It's very hot down south and it's very cold uh, in the north. Kathmandu yeah. is sort of in the middle. It's a valley. Okay. So it's like, it never really gets too hot, never gets really too cold. So oh. it's a really nice weather. Oh, okay. Yeah. Like um, Nairobi is the similar. You've been probably, saying that. Yeah. yeah, because Nairobi is in like 1600 meters or something, right? <laughs> yes. I think Kathmandu is so. very similar. So there's another... Thing that's very similar. Another overlap, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, basically, uh, I did have a jacket, but it was not enough. I didn't. <laughs> I didn't know how cold it. Was. It wasn't the right. It wasn't the right kind of jacket. jacket. I didn't have a Gore-Tex or anything. <laughs> <laughs> so what you landed there in, in which which month? Uh, it was in early summer? September. Okay, yeah, so it was like right about when it's starting to get cold. So you had enough time to get to the mall and get yeah. a jacket. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Right. And mm -hmm. uh, so I went to college there at Bates, which was an amazing experience. Mm -hmm. 
cultural shock in the beginning, like you probably went through the totally. same thing. Yep. Uh, and I actually wrote for the student newspaper. Oh, I, you did? I did for a little wow. bit okay. because I was sharing my experience on how I would find things different, right? Like simple thing as in US used to is what's up. In the very first few months, I didn't know what that meant. Like, mm, you know, mm. what, what do you mean, what's up? But I got used to it and right. had an amazing college experience. Um, and uh, during college, uh, I applied for... So I was interested in computer science. Okay. Was uh, this from... When was your first exposure to like... The computer, computer science. Yeah. Basically, computer at Beats. Nepal, I didn't have computers. There was like barely, barely internet. Right. When I was applying for colleges, it was based on those big giant Peterson's guidebook. At, uh, I know, that. I remember those things. Are they still <laughs> like, around? I don't know, actually. Because <laughs> I guess we're past that phase. Yeah, I would go to the American Culture Center and then find the book and then find out which schools to apply. It's so crazy when you think yeah. about that now because everything yeah. is online. Exactly. <laughs> so... Uh, and so when I was in the first year, I was interested in uh, speech synthesis. Okay. Like making machines read text, right? Okay. Uh, and speech recognition. This is as a freshman? This is as a freshman. How did you get exposed to that idea? I have no idea. <laughs> I still think about it. Probably it's some sort of movies, oh, I'm okay. guessing. Okay. Right? And Bates had a program that could allow no, you Bates to... Bates did not have that okay. kind of program. So mm -hmm. I just got a book from the library. And they started reading about it, and then I, in for the first summer, I just emailed like a ton of professors all in the U.S. Really? Yeah, asking if they would take me as a research student, uh, and I said I will try to find apply for a grant, so you, you don't have to worry about money. I'll try to wait a minute. So this is your first year yeah. in the U.S. Yeah, you pick some esoteric thing that's not a mainstream subject matter. And you start emailing professors telling them that you will get your own... <laughs> okay, you are. <laughs> That's amazing, right? Very resourceful and visionary, I guess. What did you want to do with this speech synthesis thing? What was the inspiration? I just, I was just interested. It was pure, okay. pure interest on the knowledge of it. Got it. It was just like... Right. I, I just there was no application that you were like... It was just no, like, this was, is cool stuff. Yeah, it was not like... It was not like right now, right? So this is... This is early 2000, uh, late 99. Um, it, was, it was basically just pure interest mm. in wanting to mm. do it. That's amazing. Obviously, you know, none of the most professors did not respond to a first year undergrad. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, this kid is about to waste my time. <laughs> but you know, I, I don't know, man. I think they missed. But one professor did. Okay. One professor did. There you go. Uh, and I'm very thankful to him. Mm. Uh, one professor did, uh, and he was a professor out of Auburn University in Alabama. Wow. Uh, and then after he said he would take me as a student in his lab, uh, the next thing was I got to find the research grant to go there. So Bates has these small micro grants mm. uh, of a couple thousand dollars, mm. which I applied for, got the grant, and then ended up the whole summer in Alabama. Wow. In Auburn, doing research on speech synthesis. In your freshman year now? In my freshman year, yeah. Wow, that's amazing. Um, and so that just sort of kicked off my, you know, overall learning experience career in machine learning. Machine yeah. learning yeah. So the speech synthesis led to doing more research on speech recognition system. Then I started doing independent study in my sophomore year. I, again, emailed a lot of professors in my sophomore year, but this time I had done uh, one full summer of research. So you had some 
something to share with yeah. them or at least a yeah. reason that would take you seriously now. Yeah, and it, even at the times, even in South Korea, most professors did not reply. Right. Uh, but amazingly, uh, the, 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 the head of School of Computer Science at Carnegie Mellon, Whoa. he forwarded my email to the, the professor uh, who I respect a lot, uh, named Professor Alan Black. Okay. And I was actually studying his speech synthesis system. He's a very big name on speech synthesis. And he has built the Festbox, the Festival, and a lot of speech synthesis systems. Mm. Um, He's built what? What's that? What? These are speech synthesis systems okay. to build speech synthesis for different languages. Got it. Wow. Okay. Uh, and you said come over. To Carnegie Mellon. To Carnegie Mellon. Mecca of all CS in some ways, right? Exactly. Exactly. Amazing. And then, so, then I did the same thing, found research money, went there for a second summer, uh, did a lot of research. And second summer, a uh, professor out of Caltech also responded, mm -hmm. so I got there too. Wow, so you're traveling around the world doing yeah. research. <laughs> this is awesome. So then um, I did research at both places, then... Um, uh, professor Professor Anne Black also became my external thesis advisor. I decided to thesis on speech recognition in your systems, undergrad. In my undergrad, yeah. Samir, man, you're making everybody <laughs> look bad right now. <laughs> and then uh, in the in the end of that summer, uh, we had built the first Nepali speech synthesizer uh, uh, for Nepali language from scratch. Wow! And then uh, <coughs> I went back home in Nepal. Also mm. did a presentation to sort of tell everybody that now we have a Nepali speech synthesizer, which worked decently. It's not as good as what system you can get today. Today, yeah, today it's a different world, <laughs> it's right? A different world, yeah. <laughs> so so def describe, define for the audience who are maybe not, you know, that familiar with some of these terms, what a speech synthesizer is and what it does. A speech synthesizer is like when you talk with Google or Google Home or CD, the, the voice that speaks back to you. That's the speech synthesis, right? Okay. And when you talk to the phone and the, the CD system recognizes your voice, that's the speech recognition system. Okay. So it's a computer for voice? Kind yeah, of. it's a, like voice to... Uh, it's basically... Speech recognition is voice to text, right. like automatic speech recognition. Okay. You speak to it, it understands what you meant. Right. Transcripts in text. Right. The speech synthesis is uh, you uh, have typed text and it will speak back. Okay. Right. Uh, okay. So these two are the core components of uh, spoken dialogue systems. Okay. That was the uh, ultimately the thing that I was working basically on. working on. Okay. Building a Nepali to English and English to Nepali translation systems and uh, uh, spoken dialogue systems. Right. In Nepali. Right. Right. It's so interesting because um, I remember at that point in time also there used I think Microsoft was taking a run at making speech to text kind of uh, application for Word and they used yeah. to have this commercial on TV of an old guy talking to the application and sending an email with that. But it never really kind of took off, right? Like, Yeah, speech recognition is hard. Yeah. Uh, and 15 years ago or so, speech recognition didn't really, really work the way it did today. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There was a lot of hype around it, or there expectations? A, I think there was some amount of hype, not as much hype as today on AI, right? <laughs> like, at, like 15 years ago, and people weren't jumping up and down about doing anything on AI. <laughs> Most people who were involved were involved purely because of the interest in machine learning and research. Right. right? But but speech in of itself is a separate sub you can disambiguate it from AI, right? Because it's just uh, it's a speech recognition is a subfield of AI. Right? Okay. So the way I would describe it is uh, AI is used as a general encompassing term for 
any system that machine makes a decision based on some data, right? Right, and that decision is useful for whatever the reason. A decision could be as simple as transcribing the speeds or making a left with the self-driving cars. Okay. Uh, within the the AI, the core foundation in today's world for building those AI systems is machine learning system. Mm -hmm. Basically, all the statistical algorithms. Mm -hmm. Uh, and within the machine learning AI world, there are all these fields, right? Like uh, uh, the whole spoken dialogue systems within it, there's speech recognition systems, speech, speech translation systems, speech synthesis systems, uh, voice recognition systems. Mm -hmm. uh, VR, okay. Yeah, yeah like there's, uh, there's, a, there's all these fields, mm -hmm. but they are all part of machine learning. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then there's computer vision and all the other. There's computer vision and the vision side, there's natural language understandings, text summarization, speed summarization. Um, neural networks, how does that fit into that whole? So neural networks is just one type of algorithm. Okay. So the machine learning algorithms, there are many different types of machine learning algorithms. Okay. And neural networks have been around for like more than 20 years, but it wasn't really popular because a lot of people, uh, it required basically a lot of data mm. and uh, and then expertise around how to tune the network and so forth mm. which has become easier but it was a little harder without a lot of compute power and mm. data in 20 years. Mm. the cost of actually yeah. uh, and there were other yeah. kind of algorithms which did pretty well without even with not like huge amounts of data mm. and so they were like other algorithms like conditional random fields, maximum entropy models, support vector machines, which were very popular in speech and language world, for example. Okay, yeah. Um, but more recently, neural networks seems to have been able to do better than most other algorithms. So that's why it's become so popular. So popular. And the reason why, what's the inflection point that made it possible for neural networks to jump ahead? So I think it's uh, three core things that has come together. Mm. One is the amount of data available. Okay. There's just so much data. In the data world, right? And uh, there's a lot of parameters to be estimated when you have a large networks with million nodes, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it just requires a lot of data. Mm. The, and the data is more easily accessible now. Uh, the other is just the compute power. Just That's having right. that enough of data is not feasible if you can't process it. Mm. Especially with GPUs, TPUs, it's become much more efficient to process a lot of data in a short amount of time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then the algorithm itself, there were some, uh, there were a bunch of updates uh, done on uh, how neural networks got trained and so forth and different kinds of neural networks that got invented, starting with uh, Jeff Hinton's papers and so forth that made it uh, neural networks to work very well mm -hmm. when you have enough data. Got it. So now, if you go to uh, AI machine learning conferences, a lot of the conferences about how to apply deep learning on XYZ problem. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Okay. So Moore's law pushed it across, you know, data and yes. compute, and then there was this tweak in terms of the algorithm, the algorithm itself. itself. Got it. So it sort of has come together very well. That's that's cool. That's yeah. Uh, that's. Yeah. I mean, was was it something that? somebody could predict would happen when or was it something that was could you could somebody somehow say i guess somebody in your you like could not. 15 years ago nobody could <clears throat> predict that neural networks are going to be the main thing across all different problems wow. like before there were different algorithms that work very well mm. Um, there's some set of algorithms probably that work very well on text data. There's some set of other kinds of algorithms that probably work on uh, vision data, like image and video data and so mm -hmm. forth. 
because you know you already you always needed to tweak it, tweak the algorithm, tweak uh, how it gets trained and so forth, depending mm. on the kind of data you had, the, the problem that you are addressing and so forth. But um, with uh, now neural networks, it sort of seems to beat most of other algorithms on most of the problems. Mm. That's why it's so popular. Got it. Got it. Cool. So you're here in Nepal doing a presentation about your new speech synthesizer. Taking oh, back oh, your take journey. Back. Yeah. Taking back the journey. Yeah. So I did that. And then uh, then in my junior year also, I continued doing uh, this research. One interesting catch was base college did not have computer science department. What? <laughs> no wonder you're trying to get to the research. Small detail. <laughs> yeah. So they did not have computer science department. Um, so I was a math and physics major, hmm. uh, and uh, I wanted to basically learn more computer science. Right. And so the only way to do that was to go to a place where they have like a proper computer science department. Mm. So what Beats does, one really nice thing about Beats is uh, the, there's a, like a, almost a culture of a lot of students in your third year going abroad mm -hmm. to study. Mm -hmm. I was already abroad. You're already abroad. <laughs> but... Uh, for me, I needed to make sure I, more, like, I learned all the basics of computer science. So uh, I applied for University College London in London nice. and went there for one semester. Uh, and mm -hmm. the, the good thing about Bates is if you have a scholarship, actually they pay you to, like they pay everything to go to a different country and mm -hmm. attend school. Mm -hmm. So we made it possible, mm -hmm. uh, which I'm thankful to Bates, of course. Uh, so they had an amazing support infrastructure, even for international students. So like... As an international student, otherwise, like some colleges, even though they provide scholarship, if you want to go to attend a different university, then it's not happening. Right? Mm. Bates has really good support. Like no. you could go to another part, another university in another world, and they will pay the tuition that's and amazing. living cost yeah. and everything. Shout out to Bates University. Yeah. That's that's really cool. And uh, so then I went for a semester, mm. took uh, four. Uh, core computer science mm. courses in, um, in London. In London, extremely hard. You know, I, <coughs> I'd taken one computer science course before that, <laughs> and I ended up signing up for master's core courses, which was really hard. You like the hard things. <laughs> That's something. No, well, I didn't even have a lot of guidance because I didn't know what, what you're getting into, what right? we're getting into, or what I you did not know. You didn't know what you did not know. What I didn't know. What and I maybe that's a good thing sometimes. Maybe, but <laughs> <laughs> how did this work out? <laughs> but it was hard. So, mm. so I, was, I somehow managed to pull through, got good enough grades, mm. um, uh, and then uh, end of junior year, I applied for PhD programs. Uh, PhD in your junior year, like after junior, in the beginning of senior year. <laughs> <laughs> that makes a big difference. <laughs> yeah, before before senior year, that wow. So, so I wow. basically started. I come back. Uh, so junior year, I again go back to Carnegie Mellon. To do more research under uh, professor. So you were not even going to school at Bates, man. <laughs> you were using Bates. <laughs> no, no, I was. <laughs> it was just the summers. It was just the summers. Okay. Because okay. I was double major, so I had okay. to take all these classes at Bates. Okay. Uh, so after I came back from the summer, I basically applied for a PhD program. I got into a few PhD programs, uh, and then uh, I chose Columbia. Uh, why did you choose Columbia? Just curious. Oh, <laughs> interesting story. Um, 
I basically my currently wife back then girlfriend mm-hmm. was also interested in doing PhD. Okay. So we're trying to find, and she was a one year behind me, right? So she was going to apply next year. So she came with me to visit like Pittsburgh and a few other places where I had gotten in, mm-hmm. and then we we're trying to decide, okay, if she were to apply for PhD, what's also a really good school for her? Okay. So based on that, uh, we thought New York's probably a better choice. Uh, as a potential couple mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, because uh, if I go to Carnegie Mellon then she wouldn't be able to go to equally good program okay because they didn't have a major what was she trying to she was doing neuroscience neuroscience Carnegie Mellon had good neuroscience as well but like New York has really good some of the Got neuroscience it. Right. so you're optimizing for both we're optimizing quality for both. top quality on both sides on both sides that's awesome uh, yeah. uh, otherwise <clears throat> you know uh, Carnegie Mellon is a great school, right? Mm-hmm. Obviously. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and it worked out. And then she also got into multiple schools and she also chose a school in New York. So we were able to do PhD together at the same time. In Columbia? No, she went to Rockefeller University, okay. which is one of the best bi programs in the country. Good stuff. So you guys moved to New York at the same so, time? No, she applied a year later. Okay. And then, uh, then she got into Rockefeller and then uh, moved a year later. Got it. Okay. Uh, so I, by that time, I was a second year PhD student. That's uh, when she came over. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So basically, I applied, uh, got into the schools, and then chose Columbia University, where I was lucky to find another great advisor, awesome. uh, Professor Julia Hirschberg. She was amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's, is she still at the university? She's still at the university. She's still at the university. Mm-hmm. Um, I still get her advice on various things and so forth. Uh, she's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, so then got my PhD there. Uh, at Columbia, uh, and finished uh, PhD, worked at IBM uh, Watson for uh, IBM Watson Yorktown Heights uh, for a bunch of years where I was working on speech-to-speech translation system. So that was one of the core things I was been trying to do from the, the speech beginning. thing, yeah, yeah, speech-to-speech from the beginning, yeah, from the very beginning. <clears throat> mm. So you can imagine from the first year of undergrad, I've been doing speech research and continue to do speech research. Mm-hmm. And I still do a little bit. Mm. Um, and it was purely because of interest around overall learning about machine learning applied in speech mm-hmm. and language mm-hmm. than anything else. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So, you know, it's, I think you and I have talked about this before, but actually one of the, the second startup I worked at in, in, in Silicon Valley was actually a natural language. It was a speech company, basically. And, oh. uh, yeah, so they were trying to automate... Uh, the customer care experience um, when you call in the, the, the call center and trying to, the business model obviously being fewer butts in seats so you can reduce the cost, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And um, the company was called Tuvox and uh, I was just... So you were in that company? I was in that company. Oh, wow. Okay. Right, for three years. and So we had some overlap on the... the exactly, world. exactly. <laughs> so, so I remember the... It was such a challenging environment to build these systems because, you know, the, the, the thing about technology, you want to create a standard product that a lot of people can use, very, very little customization. Right? Yeah. That's the whole game. That's where the gains are, are made, right? Yeah. But in this particular situation, you had to actually build custom right, applications, right? It, for different companies because they were in different businesses and they had different kind of decision tree models, they had different kind of... It's just all kinds of complexity around this. Uh, ultimately, <clears throat> very smart people. Um, 
I remember just being amazed at the found the, one of the two of the founders, but one guy was uh, the CTO and. I remember this gentleman just being amazed at that whole team. And that was my first experience in terms of seeing how startups work on the inside, right? The variability, the complexity, problem solving, nothing, you know, when you're on the outside, you think, oh, these people are smart and they've got a very clear plan, but the variability in that plan, right? How things change and, and how complex it was and how it, it was just a phenomenal experience. But the key takeaway was speech is hard very hard especially spoken dialect system dude that's incredibly hard this is 2006 and it's still very hard <laughs> it's still very hard in 2019 wow even with all the achievements that uh, has happened in the machine learning world and so forth speech like spoken dialect system is still not fully fully real mm. you talk you ask questions to siri you ask questions to google home you ask questions to amazon alexa but it's still very limited to asking questions and getting responses mm-hmm. back what's the weather like play me music by feist uh you know it's very basic like yeah? what's my schedule look like right right, right. uh try imagining uh having a machine uh read a book um one of your favorite book, let's say, and then have a one-hour conversation with the oh. machine. <laughs> so far from there. Not going to happen soon. Not happening anytime soon. And that's one thing I think sometimes uh, some of the young, uh, more than the researchers, young students who have seen some of these videos uh, assume that, you know, you can just build a spoken dialogue system that would just talk like humans. So if you're trying to build a business in, in the speech world, you need to realize the limitations of current research. Mm-hmm on what's possible and what's not possible. And if what is possible is good enough for the business model, right? Uh, that's something important to think about. Yeah, yeah. because um, our experience at the startup I was at, what was possible wasn't, <laughs> wasn't good enough for the good business enough. model, right? In theory, it was very exciting. And they built some amazing applications. Actually, uh, the company, we had customers like, for example, uh, Apple. Right. Okay. So Apple had this problem where when the iPod came out, they would have spikes during the holiday season because everybody got an iPod as a gift. Yeah. And the customer, the setup, right? I want to set up my iPod for the first time. And the spike, call spike would just hit the roof. Now, how do you staff for that? How do you operationally operationalize that in your call center, right? Yeah. Because you have to train people and then now what are you going to do? So <clears throat> they needed a solution. So we created actually a way for... Uh, customers to actually call in and be walked through the setup of an iPod, and I thought that was a pretty, pretty, was pretty cool, pretty cool, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean that was one of the success stories that I saw there. But net of it is everything else beyond that, beyond just basic kind of decision yeah, tree process, yeah. was quite challenging. It's hard, and uh, <laughs> when I started Fuse Machines, uh, one of the first things we, one of the first product was actually around customer service automation. <laughs> oh my God, you should, I should have just called me or I told you my man. <laughs> but I had already, I already knew being on the speech field for such a long time that if I tried to build a business by trying to build a full speech-to-speech dialogue system over the phone, forget about it's it. not going to happen. Mm. So, yeah, and I remember some of my colleagues saying, why are you not doing like a full speech-to-speech system? Mm. Uh, but I knew... It, from a research world, it's fine. Presenting papers, it's fine. Uh, having a uh, decent system, it's fine too. But when you want the system to talk to like 
millions of people with uh, their own ways of interacting with right. the machine, it's right. not it's going to fall apart if we do speech dialogue system, especially over the phone, right? right? Because um, the bandwidth is clipped, it's the speech recognition gets slightly harder on the phone and so forth. So uh, we did text to, like basically type typing, sorry, text mm. to text, mm. and uh, in fact we had our first customer as New York City government. Mm. One of our first customers, mm. where we were deploying for uh, one of the units that helped New York City residents open businesses in New York. Okay. Because opening businesses in New York is quite complex with a lot of different permits required and so forth. So a lot of people do call. Right. right, 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 uh, right and there's right. a phone call uh, that you could talk call to in New York. And so we built a. Uh, we had the first system, and then we retrained it for like. A, New York City kind of questions and mm -hmm. so forth, and put it as a chatbot. Okay. So cool. and these days, chatbots are popular. It's yeah. called chatbot. We yeah. call it uh, dialogue system again. Still coming from a research world, I guess. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but essentially, chatbots, and it seemed to work decently well. Mm. Like I said, even in chat to text to text full dialogue, it's still very hard. Mm -hmm. um, for machine shorter the sentences, it's the harder it gets to really? understand it. Really. Uh, short sentence. Short sentence in terms of written or or this is. I mean, it's, it's counterintuitive. I would have thought the shorter the sentence, the easier it is to just. I mean, it's it's harder because you need a lot more context on it's the conversation context. you are having, right? Right. So let's say uh, I ask you, or you ask me, mm. uh, would you like to climb Mount Everest or something like that, mm. uh, and I could respond with one word. Right. Maybe, yeah, maybe. Right. Right. Or yeah, I, I want to. Or right. like you know, like right. same word. Like uh, you could, depending on how you say it, it could be a rhetorical question back to you. Right. It could be a, a very affirmative. Yeah, I'm excited about this. Or like maybe yeah, sure. So the meaning, the meaning, the understanding of uh, a short sentence is very hard. Yes. Right. Like I like like I give this example uh, in my class as well. So if you take a sentence such as. I saw a man on a hill with a telescope. Like, what do you understand? Right. <laughs> Other than the figurative image, what is he doing there? With, like, like you probably. What time of the day is it? Exactly. So you're probably saying you understand it as I have a telescope and I saw a man on a hill. That's it. Yeah. Right. But I might say that if I was on a hill walking, I literally saw a man walking right in front of me carrying a telescope. <laughs> Right? right. Both are correct. Right. If you're in a living room, there's a telescope on the side and you are in like Colorado or somewhere where there's a mountain and you say, okay, I, with a telescope, I'm able to see. Wow. But different context. Different context, right? Uh, we as humans, we just understand it. Uh, but for machines, it, you need to be able to encode all that information on the context and all that. So it makes it hard for machine to understand. Uh, short sentences, natural language understanding in general is a very hard, very hard. Part. because the intonation, hard. emphasis, accent. Uh, not yeah, all of that mm. combined with from a research perspective, we're just not there yet on being able to understand have, having machines built so that it just fluently understands everything we say. Right. Uh, that's just that's yeah, just the case. Fundamentally, I mean, just from a layman's term, just thinking about how we learn as human beings, right? I mean, from the beginning, if we are a speech system being trained in a culture, right? We have this thing inside us that's learning the environment in a very multi 
stimuli way yeah. and we build this database of context. Yeah. How do you replicate that? Exactly. And that's one of, I mean, there's a lot of research also being done right now on being able to answer this question. How a three-year-old, three-year-old kid with a limited vocabulary, without a lot of data, I mean, like the, the, the three-year-old, 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 data. three-year-old <laughs> like enough data, is able to just understand everything and speak fluently, yeah, yeah. while no matter how much data you throw at, at a machine, even like 30 years of data, or 300 years of data, if you take all the data that's probably collected at Amazon and Google, still the systems not cannot even talk to you as a three-year-old. So what does this mean? That, does it mean how far are we from that reality? We are pretty far. We're pretty far. We're okay. pretty far. We are pretty <clears throat> far from having a machine that can just converse like this. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, we're not there yet. Yeah, yeah. So, so what? I guess now that begs a question, and maybe we're jumping ahead here, but this is great because we're going down your path, and maybe we, let's go back to that. Like you're at Watson, and then you yeah. Uh, oh, so going back to the journey, mm-hmm. so. I wanted to work on the speech-to-speech translation system. Mm. IBM uh, mm-hmm. Watson Research Lab had one of the best speech-to-speech translation systems. So I joined uh, IBM Watson, worked on a speech-to-speech translation system. Uh, I worked there for a whole bunch of years. Uh, uh, it went pretty well. The, the team was excellent. Had a lot of fun. And then... Some, what are some of the breakthroughs you guys made or what, what are some of the things? Oh, so we were actually part of this, uh, this overall program called Transtech where teams competed to, uh, across different companies and different universities where a team of a company and universities would come together to compete with others. Mm-hmm. Uh, the evaluations were done by NIST. And so the Olympics um, for centuries. And it's like every year, it's called Go No Go. And like basically, uh, a whole bunch of companies compete in the first year. The ones who don't really do really well, they get thrown out of the program and so forth. And you keep going as, so awesome. as you do better and better. Yeah. Uh, so we went, we got all the way to the finals, which is like the final year, fifth, five. And what was your application? What were you guys, what were you presenting that made you so good? What was your thing? We were building a, basically a speech-to-speech translation system that you could speak in English and it would translate into many different languages. Wow. And it will speak back. Cool. Uh, yeah. I mean, without going into too much more context, but it would uh, help uh, help people on being able to understand languages. You know, this is, this is amazing uh, because one of the things that has been a boon for travelers and my own personal experience was traveling to South America a lot when I was still living in, in the Bay Area. I would go to, to Mexico, Colombia, and having my phone and having that Google Translate yeah. that you could speak to, and it, it, was, it wasn't perfect, but it worked really well, right? Like you could communicate with somebody. Yeah, it, work, it works decently. It, nice. works, it works, and it's gotten better and better. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's, and that was part of my interest. I think if I look back, that's probably what I'd been wanting to do. Okay. And the speech synthesis research, speech recognition systems research, spoken dialect systems research all sort of made me ready to do the most advanced research on the speech-to-speech translation systems. Mm. Uh, yeah, so I did that. Uh, and after getting to the basically almost, I guess you could call it finals or mm-hmm. like the final years of it mm. and finishing the project, uh, I left IBM uh, to teach at Columbia and also to run Fuse Machines. So what what was the... Fuse Machines was... Why did you... 
why fuse machines? Why start a company? What was the thing you? Uh, so I'd been doing. I'd been basically because uh, most academics. I was pretty much academic. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Like I don't I, do entrepreneurship. They like don't. there was nothing about entrepreneurship. It was pure doing all this research, getting all this knowledge on machine learning and applying on speech and language world was all based on the passion of research and knowledge and all that. There right. is nothing else. Mm. But uh, the academic world is very much about doing new research, publishing it in conferences or journals, having that impact and more people taking your work and building on top of it mm -hmm. and so forth. Right? Mm -hmm. um, I started, I, I guess, uh, you can call it entrepreneurial bug or whatever it is. I, I wanted to see if I could apply everything that I've learned and apply it in a business world uh, to make an impact, a much wider impact. Than right? just research papers. Just research. And I knew <coughs> I also knew most of my friends who are uh, like professors or research scientists or whatever, right? Um, they're all still doing similar academic work. Mm. Uh, and there's this, it takes a little bit extra effort on converting that research into real world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, because uh, academics are just doing research on that. Right, right, right. There, there's a business world where you have to also figure out... The okay, commercial angle? Commercial angle, does it create value? You know, I had never heard the term ROI. <laughs> <laughs> for the longest time, I didn't even know what are it you? stands for. Parallel <laughs> <laughs> <Our little> universe. <laughs> but now I know. And then now I, I'm able to say, okay, we we got to figure out ROI for this. <laughs> Oh man! So, um, so you know, we this this that this is that angle of having to figure all that out mm. on the entrepreneurial mm. world that makes a difference on how you can commercialize something and make an impact. So I was interested in that mm. uh, as well, mm. and after being basically academic researcher for for a long time, I started my journey with okay, let me let me start a company. Uh, and one of the first things you have to answer yourself, but like all, like any other entrepreneurs, right, is okay. What company? What like? What kind of company? What's supposed to do? What problem are you solving? What problem you're solving? And um, I knew I'd been doing speech research for such a long time. So, and most of my friends were still in academia. Uh, so I thought, if I can take all the knowledge that I have learned over whatever number of years and build a system, something to do with speech and language, we could probably have a shot at building one of the best systems in the world. To do what? And so then, you know, I was trying to figure out, okay, what problem to solve no, yeah, from okay. the commercial okay. angle. Okay. And then I realized, in, today in the world, there's almost 4 billion calls made to customer service centers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's, that's crazy. When I heard that number, it's like, that's a, that's a big number, right? Like, <laughs> and what year is this now? This, which year was this that you This were? was 2013 now. 2013. Wow. I should, I, I, I'm thinking about our... I, I forget his name right now. Our CTO, because this is the same problem two boxes trying to solve. Go ahead. <laughs> exactly. go ahead. This is, this is exactly. But at least it's five years later or six years later. So actually seven years later. So maybe you have a better chance. I don't know. Now there's better systems. Mm. But uh, so then I said, okay, let's build a system. Mm. Then I started putting a team together. Mm. And then I... Also, in the in the early phases itself, I knew this is a difficult problem not, we're trying to yeah, tackle, right? Yeah. It's not like, 
and just building an app for something. It right. was like first the technology needed to be solved, which is which is not an easy problem to mm. solve to start with, mm. which required a lot of engineers, which made a lot of money and so forth. So one of the things uh, we started doing was I started building a team in Nepal. Okay. Where I started Some more affordable kind of thing? Uh, Cost of well, labor? Well, there was a bunch of interests overlapping, right? So like me being from Nepal, there's... Uh, there's uh, uh, talent pool there that could be trained this notion of can we actually train uh, some of the engineers in Nepal mm-hmm. obviously there's uh, uh, the cost issues as well and so forth so based on all that I started training and then it worked out pretty well hmm. it worked and out how, well. how did you fund this process I mean in the beginning myself okay yeah okay but then we quickly raised uh, some angel money okay uh, from Nepal or from no from the US okay, from the US. okay. Uh, Nepal so, you know, like I said, that's, right. that's what do people invest in? I bet it's pretty similar in terms of with Kenya. In Nepal, I mean, there's there's no VC culture, yet. right? But yeah. pe- people invest in stuff because here oh, people invest in real estate. That's what everybody invests in Nepal. <laughs> so this speech, what is this? Nah, nah, yeah. I didn't even <laughs> try. Try even try. It was not gonna happen. Right. You, plus, yeah. your all your professional network was yeah. It's like I've been living in the US, right? right so. Right. Uh, uh, so yeah, I did raise some angel money. Uh, how how difficult or easy was that? Like, it wasn't that hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I know it's probably not the same answer everybody would say. Raising money is definitely very hard. Um, at least in the beginning, when it's not a lot of money, it wasn't that bad. Okay. Uh, obviously, now I've raised a bunch of times, and mm-hmm. raising money is one of the hardest things. I think the three the three or maybe they just. I don't know, like, you hear two sides of the coin, right? Um, some ideas people just will be hard to raise money for because they're so, like, people are not familiar, right? Uh, in some cases, if somebody comes with a certain pedigree, it might be easier, right? Because we'll say, hey, this guy, you yeah. know, I'll put that makes it easier. Right? So there's a pedigree thing, the idea thing, which is not, if people are not familiar with it, that can be hard, right? Yeah. Because you always hear these stories of people who had to pitch, I don't know how many and now that thing is so obvious and amazing, right? Um, yeah, so raising money is this very yeah. interesting thing. Yeah, I mean, in general, I would say raising money is hard, period. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just hard. Let, let's just accept that. Yeah. So, you know, we're Impact Africa Network is a nonprofit. So we're in the fundraising process right yeah. now. And um, the way I think about it is like, it's, it's, it's climbing that first layer of, you know, Getting to one from zero to one—that's the hardest. That's the hardest part, I think. Really like, hard, and yeah. we're kind of in that innocent climb. Yeah. Um, our target audience is is uh, exited founders, right? Yeah. Because they understand what a startup studio is and how yeah. entrepreneurs need support and you know that whole kind of. Yeah. So so we're we're going through that right now. I feel like once you get to one, it gets easier. It gets easier because I think for investors. Uh, the biggest risk is in the beginning, mm-hmm. right? So, mm-hmm. like going from that zero to one, most companies never get to one. Mm-hmm. So that means the risk is the highest, mm-hmm. and everybody wants a low risk, high returns. Mm-hmm. Essentially, <laughs> <laughs> like all right? So because of that, I think it makes it hard. Mm-hmm. And uh, some of the things you said, pedigree, the field you are in, the idea you have, all of that also makes a difference. Right. And what I would say is, especially for early entrepreneurs who are trying to raise their first round of capital, 
you should sort of put yourself in investor's shoes and then totally. ask yourself would I invest why why would I invest yeah, if yeah, I would yeah. invest yeah. what makes the team special right. or whatnot right? right so knowing having a much deeper knowledge in the field that you're about to get into mm-hmm. I think that makes a difference totally because then the investors sort of get more um, more comfortable, comfortable. Uh, than somebody who says, okay, I'm going to build an app for insurance. And then the person has never done anything. In you don't come from insurance. So how is that going to, yeah. yeah. You don't uh, bring any knowledge. You don't bring it like what, like, so you need that. Uh, yeah. So I think that's what I would say to like in the, in the beginning, you need to make sure you at least have some sort of exposure and some deeper knowledge in the field that you are entering totally yeah. uh, to do it. And sometimes if you find a co-founder, that's that also that makes that, a difference. that also could compensate for right. your you not having right. full experience, right? So, so you do you have a co-founder yourself when you are doing? I did not. I okay. did not. Uh, it's you're a one-man band. Uh, no more. <laughs> no, but when back in the in the beginning, yeah, yeah, it was just me. And so how, it's hard though. I I would. There's obviously uh, advantages and disadvantages on the both sides, mm. uh, but I think I recommend having a co-founder. Totally Otherwise, right. it's a very long, lonely, lonely journey. long journey. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the toll it takes on you mentally, emotionally, it's just too difficult. Yeah, it's just too hard. Too hard yeah. just yeah. by yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. So do you have a co-founder now or... I mean... No. I mean, we have a team now, right? You have so, a team. So, so your team is your co-founder. Basically. Yeah. Like we have a team who takes care of uh, most of the stuff. So mm-hmm. there's there's a team. There's there's like, you know, there's everybody, there's different departments. Yep. There's department heads. Yep. Uh, it's a more comfortable situation from that perspective. Yeah. I don't have to do everything. Right. So from 2013, you raised your angel money in 2013, right? No. Yeah. So we raised angel money in 2013, uh, two rounds. Uh, okay. of angel money all convertible notes then 2014 we did uh, the first first round mm-hmm. uh, of VC capital mm-hmm. uh, like in the in the middle of 2014 mm-hmm. and by the time we had New York City as a client mm-hmm. uh, we had tech already built out mm-hmm. and so forth mm-hmm. and then and then you know we basically kept on chugging along we built another product line uh, yeah for sales um, on the AI yeah, for customer service side, uh, we ultimately actually closed down that product line mm-hmm. uh, and that whole business line mm-hmm. uh, because uh, we made some early mistakes. You know, I was a first-time entrepreneur, totally uh, yeah. Yeah. coming from academic background, mm-hmm. just learning about ROI. ROI, <laughs> I need some ROI. <laughs> Uh, we made some some big mistakes. Uh, what are some of the? Do you, could you share some of, of them? course? Yeah. yeah. So I think uh, we had the tech uh, uh, being academic, Academics, plus yeah. being from tech background, very very much into machine learning. Uh, my world revolved a little too much around, around tech. tech. You know what right. I've seen, you know I've seen a lot of that, right? That yeah. This is a struggle that uh, even in Silicon Valley is a recognized thing. Hence, Andreessen Horowitz is the one who's been the most, uh, they were the one who just jump-started this idea of taking very technical founders and building an infrastructure around them. And I have modeled our whole Impact Africa network around that because I thought that was so brilliant, right? Because the mistakes, right? Yeah. And in in startup world, you want to, if you're going to make mistakes, you want to make mistakes fast and learn from it quickly, quickly and then 
fix it. Right. Because uh, you're I'm, running out of time. Because you're running out time. of time. Right? <laughs> I like this uh, this phrase or quote, whoever said it, I don't remember. It's like uh, building a company is like building out of an airplane. And you're giving a bunch of things to build a parachute. And you're literally trying to build a parachute. Oh, as you're falling down. <laughs> <laughs> if you manage to make the parachute before you land on the ground, you're good. You're good. Otherwise, <laughs> Otherwise splash. <laughs> so you're literally running out of time. <clears throat> like, like that's, the, that's the core thing about right. startups. Right. Everything needs to be done so fast. Right. And right. so any, any mistakes you want to make, you want to you make quick. Learn. Make quick, learn, learn and so forth. Yeah. And that's, I think, one of the advantages of uh, raising money from... Uh, uh, venture capital firms or other private equity firms or other even other angel investors who have done it a lot and yeah. has seen these patterns and knows exactly how to help. Uh, yeah, they can add value, man. Because at the end of the day, I think most people misunderstand what building a company is, especially if they haven't done it, right? They think there's a sequential process, but it's a village. It takes a village. It's a full-court press. And you can't have weak links with what we call dead money on your cap table, yeah. right? And I think people are much more aware about that yeah. than they are. I think they are aware. Right. They are aware. Right. And right. that makes a difference because, mm. uh, I mean, I guess the phrase is smart money, right? Like, right. Uh, right. The one, the, you take the money from the ones who could also help you in many other ways. Right. Uh, that's important. Mm. Uh, that mm. helps in overall like I said, execution. Execution. Right. And it's all about execution. Period. It's all about execution. Yeah. Uh, someone else might have the same idea. But if you can better execute than the other person, then you probably have a higher likelihood yeah. of success. Yeah. So, yeah, it was. It's so it's all about execution, and you know, in the beginning, you make a lot of mistakes. Mm -hmm. So we made a lot of mistakes, mm -hmm. and so to go back to your the answer on some of the mistakes we made, I think one big mistake we made was one we were just too focused on the product. I mean, I literally wrote the first version V1 or V0.1, however you looked at it. So, two thousands of lines of code. Wow. I coded myself. The did, first did nobody one. ever tell you, hey, Samir, let's go sell this thing? Let's go sell it. <laughs> nobody, so, nobody. No, I mean, we started doing it. Uh, uh, and that's how we ended up getting a New, New York, York City, City as one yeah, of our yeah, first clients. Yeah. But, the, but then the, the mistake I think uh, we did was we didn't realize how hard it is to sell to enterprise as a very small company. We got lucky uh, on being able to sell to New York City. Mm -hmm. Even that process was grueling. We had mm -hmm. to do like five iterations of demos all the way to deputy mayors and all that. But um, that it moved fast enough uh, because of change in you know the mayorship itself and whatnot. There's, so this Who was this at the time? Uh, Bloomberg. It was Bloomberg. Okay. Yeah. And now it's the Blasio. Yeah. So you started the Bloomberg. Did you finally get the contract on the the Blasio? No, actually, we literally went live pretty much on the last days in the Bloomberg administration. <laughs> <laughs> but it worked out for us because there was these deadlines. Okay. Uh, that made things everything move fast. That, those deadlines. Okay. So I've, my career was enterprise so, software, enterprise sales. Yeah. Right? So that's what. So you know it all, right? <laughs> so well, so the the second mistake is. Exactly about that, which is not realizing how hard enterprise sales is. So yeah. we got lucky with New York City because of these deadlines and whatnot, move fast. So you're like, okay, this is how it works. This is how it works. So we can actually sell to enterprise. And that was a huge mistake. Uh, we were not enterprise ready. We didn't have enterprise sales team. None of that. That process will kill you dead. Yeah. And then... <laughs> We went ahead with enterprise sales, just targeting large banks and whatnot. 
especially the bank and and then and then you know even in that getting some pilots we were lucky Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. we had like a couple banks who did pilot but at the end of it even the pilots went well uh, they came back to us and said well how am I supposed to have how, no, actually, they, their concerns were more on, like, how should I rely on you? I'm gonna, exactly. I'm going to deploy this to 2,000 people in Scotland. And, and you guys are sitting... You, and like, am I supposed... If something goes wrong, am I supposed to call the CEO? <laughs> <laughs> all that. So they made us, like, uh, get uh, all these kinds of insurances and so forth. Even wow. we, so we started getting in all these insurances as well. But even then, I think, at the end of it... Indemnity clauses and all yeah, this. Kind it was of too crazy. big of a. It was too big for a very small startup totally. to eat in, yeah, and yeah, then yeah. for them, that that bank out of Scotland, they were like, it's too small. Can't happen. <laughs> too much of a risk. Too much of a risk for their part to rely on. Mm-hmm. We like the product. Product is great. We can't take. But yeah. there's too much of a risk to rely on a very yeah. small company. Yeah. Uh, that doesn't have that is the always the kind of the conundrum right like yeah. how you how you go from again zero to one right zero to one yeah and so that was the big mistake we made mm-hmm. uh, i think what we should probably should have done looking back is probably gone to like a more mid-sized companies mm-hmm. uh mm-hmm. or smaller companies and sort of built from build, there build from there yeah. but uh we went directly to enterprise. I mean, there are a lot of startups who also directly go to enterprise because sometimes some products are just Low meant risk. for enterprise. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And maybe, but I mean, if it's Slack, I mean, you could use Slack as an application. I mean, they were able to kind of climb up to yeah, pretty quickly. Yeah. Because it's a departmental thing. I mean, yeah. people are community, just chat thing. Yeah. Uh, and one other thing is you can directly go to also enterprise if you also have a very decent chunk of cash to raise that you could use for building up the infrastructure quickly and mm-hmm. also building up enterprise sales team. I, th- I think for you, I don't know, man, I, I default to this thought that for you to be able to be successful in that play, you have to have people who've done it before. Yeah. Period, right? Like, go, if you're going to go down that path yeah. of enterprise, yeah. you're going to have to have people who can get you into the door, who can move the process forward, who yeah. have relationships. Who understands that it takes nine people to decide on your contract yeah. and yeah. enterprise. And, and they can, yeah. Yeah, we didn't have, and we didn't have that. We didn't have the money to hire the enterprise sales team. Mm-hmm. So very expensive. Yeah. Very expensive. Uh, so those were some of the mistakes we mm-hmm. did, and uh, which was really good learning experience looking back, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and uh, today, that's why Fuse Machine CI schools that we deploy and AI as a service, we just slowly started going into enterprise. Mm. Uh, when we have already have so many clients and all this revenue coming in and right. so forth, we didn't say on day one, okay, let's start to talk to all the big banks. <laughs> <laughs> We've done this before. We've done this before. <laughs> We've made this mistake before. Let's not make it again. Yeah, super smart. Yeah. So, I mean, so I guess you kill the product and you have. How did you end up where you are right now? I guess first of all, describe what you what you guys evolved to become. Yeah. So now we basically uh, provide uh, AI education solution mm-hmm. and AI talent solution. Uh, talent and education. Talent and education. They go hand in hand. Right. One is uh, downstream from the other. Yeah. Right? Exactly. So define the talent part is more. Basically, we uh, the education solution is we uh, run AI schools. Right, mm-hmm. these franchised AI schools. Mm-hmm. We where we partner with the local partner. Mm-hmm. We would run the 
uh, the local version of the school. Mm. We provide the platform that includes the, the content, the learning, the assessment platform, school moderation platform, discussion platforms, mm. exam platforms, like mm. you name it, right? Like we've had a large team building it for almost the last one and a half years. Uh, we provide that uh, and then training of the teachers, all the training material, all of that. And then the, in the local partner runs it in the physical school and understands the all local, the dynamics. Of local dynamics and all that. Mm. Um, and then that generates the talent, mm. uh, right? And it serves a couple different uh, purposes. Uh, one, our part of the core mission around democratizing AI, making AI accessible to underserved communities in the U.S. and around the world, uh, it fulfills part of that mission as well, mm -hmm. because... Because mm -hmm. uh, you're making AI, by definition, the schools are in the developing world, most of them? Most of them, but we are opening in the underserved communities in the U.S. as well. Right. There's a lot of really poor counties in the U.S. Yeah, as yeah, well, yeah, who, yeah, yeah. who could also use AI schools. Yep, totally. So basically, uh, this notion of they are really talented people in yes, other subcommittees. But they don't have access. They don't have the access. They've never gotten the opportunity uh, to have this really good learning experience. Right. So we provide that, okay. right? Uh, and that creates this talent pool from which we hire best of the best uh, to build teams as AI teams uh, for companies that are looking to find AI talent. Uh, and so that's the AI talent solution part. So that almost can sound like you guys are uh, uh, employing uh, like an a, like a recruiting conduit, but you're more than that, right? Yeah, we're more than that. Uh, so we're not exactly placing them in uh, companies. We are mostly hiring them ourselves. Okay. So we hire them ourselves on your bench, basically. Yeah, and we actually retrain them again on the soft skills and all that right, stuff. Right. Right. We get them really ready. Uh, to work in high-pressure, fast-moving environment of the startup worlds uh, and other high-pressure uh, places to work at mm -hmm. uh, where they are building advanced technologies. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then, you know, we put the team together and provide that, uh, service, that service to help these companies to help these companies get their machine learning AI yeah. strategy played out. And, and, the, and the reason to describe the, the current market conditions right now around that, you know, for a company such as yours, like there are so many questions I can ask, but in, for the audience to kind of get a sense of the market opportunity, how you how you got to where you are, what are some of the insights that led you to say, OK, let's go down this path? Yeah. So basically, you probably read on the news everywhere. There's reports from McKinsey, uh, ENY, and everywhere that you know how AI is going to change the economy and what kind of impact the AI is going to have. Some reports say you know it's going to have a ten trillion dollar of impact in the economy by 2030. Right. I mean, it's still like 11, 12 years away. Uh, some say 12. I mean, there's like all kinds of predictions, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and some reports say in billions uh, and whatnot. So, but but I think one thing that everybody agrees it, it's going to have a big impact. Okay. Because a lot of different industries are starting to integrate AI solutions into their daily workflows, into their product cycles, and so forth. Mm -hmm. From insurance, from uh, retail banking to manufacturing to healthcare to education everywhere across the board across yeah. the board which are some of the most successful applications you can mention really quickly or industries where you've seen some I think uh, <coughs> in the 
um, in banking world, mm. uh, it seems to work pretty well mm. from being able to do a better risk modeling to uh, even some of the uh, automation on the customer service side. Mm -hmm. uh, there's definitely uses in the insurance world uh, on being able to provide quick estimates on uh, the payout if there's a car accident by just taking a picture of a car, mm -hmm. uh, of the accident. Mm -hmm. uh, there's in healthcare as well, right? Uh, using computer vision systems and obviously on transportation, right? Like the self-driving cars mm, yeah, that okay. is starting to happen. <coughs> uh, it's going to be a while before, you know, there's just self-driving cars, but it's starting to become real. You've seen probably these Tesla videos, Google mm -hmm. videos mm -hmm. on drive cars driving themselves. Mm. Cool. So, yeah, these are some of the... Uh, the early wins. Yeah, early wins. And um, so, so you guys, so you saw this movement or this demand yeah did you get market pull what was it what was the thing that said okay let's not let's go down the services angle and education angle yeah so basically seeing all this uh, opportunity that's starting to be created across different industries and seeing that everybody needs machine learning engineers and the supply and demand is completely out of whack. Right. Asymmetry right? is crazy. Asymmetry is crazy. So right now, it, like we had just done, recently done some research. If you look at just the June numbers and look at all the openings of machine learning engineers, uh, openings, uh, there's 250,000 jobs. Globally. Globally, right? So there's uh, 250,000 job wrecks for machine learning. Open right now that you can apply for mm -hmm. on the machine learning, AI, data science, all that side. Wow. Right? That's billions of dollars in salary if you think about it. <laughs> <Straight> <laughs> <out>. <laughs> if you multiply by the average salary. Wow, wow, wow. Um, so, and you could look at some of the reports from Tencent and a few other companies mm. where it basically says the number of engineers that's required is in millions, while the number of engineers available is a couple hundred thousand. Wow. So, there's this asymmetry uh, on the talent, AI talent that's required today versus. Yeah, talent available right. today. Right. And that asymmetry is the, the opportunity. opportunity. Right. Filling that gap is the opportunity. So that's the way we looked at it as that this talent requirement across the board is the opportunity. So uh, let's go and, get it. And let's do it. Right. Mm. And so So what was the first three when you saw that you decided let's build a curriculum? Yeah, so in the beginning we were focused more on the service side by training the engineers through a fellowship program, okay. which we call AI Fellowship. Uh, it's part <coughs> of Columbia MicroMasters program, mm. and we would, uh, through EDX, and we would pay for it. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the ones who graduate, the ones who graduated with high marks, we would hire them, mm. and then uh, put them as part of the talent solution mm. as a service. Uh, but as we did that more, we, we realized is if we want to scale, we cannot just pay for the training of everybody mm. you start to cost too much mm -hmm. and that's when we said okay we should do schools uh, franchise schools uh, where the students can come and attend the school at a very low cost uh, and get really good education uh, such that you know once who graduate with a certain amount of uh, grades certain grades at certain uh, capacity that's been built up because of the way they learned, we could hire them and then uh, as Fuse Machines mm -hmm. employees mm -hmm. and then they could help us with our own product lines or help clients. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's sort of how it has worked out. Got it. 
Cool. I mean, this is awesome. I mean, you're definitely a leader in a space that is, I mean, very, very hot and, and, and high demand for, for what you're offering. And, you know, at Impact Africa Network, you know, you and I have talked about this before. What we do is we build projects into companies. And we see um, our partnership with you came at a very fortuitous time because one of the markets, opportunities, or needs we see in Africa, around the world, is talent, yeah. right? And how do you pipeline talent into this into the skill areas, right? So this is something I was always thinking about. I was like, how would I solve that problem? Because genius is evenly distributed. Opportunity is not something. Sometimes people don't even know what they're good at because they've not been exposed to it. So I was always thinking about this, and that was always going to be one of the projects we would build yeah. within the umbrella of Impact Africa Network. And when we started talking, I was like... Phew, you know, because it's, it's interesting. Even a, a couple of months before, I pulled together a couple of friends and started saying, okay, if you look at the Kenyan market in the tech space, where are the gaps in, in terms of skill area? And we're like, okay, for to put together a program, what would it look like? Would it be, you know, product management? Would it be whatever it was, right? And <clears throat> we put together a WhatsApp group and chatted about it. And two months later, you and I were talking and, you know, I was looking at... Perfect timing. Like, All right, Samir, this is great. And, you know, it's so interesting because the way you and I connected, serendipity, right? Yeah, yeah. My, my journey to move back here, it's so interesting because the individual who connected us, Dipta, amazing individual, right? So I was going through this process of trying to figure out how do you solve the problem of enabling early stage entrepreneurship in, 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 in our market and the developing world so i was like okay maybe it's a seed stage venture fund right because <clears throat> local founders were not getting funded and i was like i can step in and solve that problem because we have this cultural affinity i can yeah you know i can be able to see the forest for the trees uh, the reality of the situation is the people who are getting funded here are mostly foreign founders right that's just the reality because of networks and people feel more comfortable with them it is what it is but i was like if we cannot activate the talent that's here in terms of building solutions that are homegrown and local, we're not going to be able to actually capitalize on this digital transformation. So anyway, through that process, that's when I met Dipta at the World Bank, IFC. He was running a program that would fund fund managers, right? And through that is when <clears throat> I remember he's been pivotal to me in a very interesting way he has because we had this very candid conversation when I, met, when I sat down with him in D.C. when I was going through this process of raising a fund. And because we had so much similarity in terms of he's from Nepal, we're kind of in the same part of our lives, I am. I just asked him an off-the-record question that you're maybe not supposed to ask an LP. <laughs> I'm not an LP. I was like, Dipta, what do you think I should do? I'm at this point in my life. Do, do you think I should make this move back you know, to Kenya? And he was like, he was very honest with me. He was like, if you don't do it now, you're never going to do it. That, that conversation was pivotal in my decision. Okay. So that's when I moved back and then I got this email from him and I'm like, hey, there's this guy who's trying to do some stuff in Africa. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, everybody's trying to do stuff in Africa. I'll take the call, whatever. <laughs> and here we are, right? Yeah, because yeah, when you and I got on the phone and we talked, I was like... A couple like, months ago, right? It was yeah, just a couple months ago. Yeah, I was like, this is it. You know, this is, this is, the, this is, the, this is the first project that we will be building, right? Because, again, we are, we are an umbrella organization that provides a, an environment to work on, very, on, on projects that become companies. And yeah. it's very pragmatic, very bottoms up. Let's build, let's build companies. Let's not do this idea thing. Of course, it has to be an idea. The, the big idea here is 
pipelining talent into high skill, valuable, right? And that's what yeah. alignment comes in, right? So, yeah. yeah, dude, listen, I mean, <clears throat> yeah, I guess... No, I was in, here we are a couple of months after. Right. And I mean, I'm super excited. The whole company is excited about the school here that's going to open up. And yeah, yeah. Uh, you as a local partner, you guys as a local partner, I think I think it'll be good. It'll be yeah. good all around. Uh, I tell you this, Samir. We, Kenya is one of those places that, um, like you said, we're very similar. Maybe with Nepal, it, it's, it's the talent here is insane, right? Uh, I can very confidently say that we we will be your best, uh, this partnership will be your best partner. And that's our goal I'm in pleased. terms of quality, in terms of throughput, um, and in terms of just upside. Um, because, you know, we, we are aligned in terms of how we think about democratizing opportunity. Yeah. Right? The values are aligned. Right. And so, and the opportunity is, is very much there. So, um, I guess, final thing, you know, any kind of final tips, you know, any kind of thoughts you want to share with the audience in terms of people who, a couple of things. One is if they're looking to develop an, a career in, in AI. And the other one, if they're looking to become an entrepreneur or any anything, but maybe AI question first. Sure. I think if you are trying to build a career in AI, uh, and especially if you are sort of thinking from the engineering side of perspective, mm. what I would say is make sure you know the fundamentals very well. Um, it's easy to get in the bandwagon of just downloading a scikit-learn and start building stuff and then being able to show a quick demo in like two days and say like, oh, okay, I just built a face recognition system and now I know, yeah, yeah kind of a notion uh, that sometimes, have, like doing it like that, you should obviously learn and how to use tools. Right. But getting carried on on how much you know machine learning based on a library you don't downloaded, uh, sometimes could backfire because then you would not delve as much uh, effort as you should be on first understanding the fundamentals. And fundamentals are linear algebra, calculus, um, probability, statistics, and all, all fundamentals of programming, obviously. Mm -hmm. So if you have all that fundamentals put together very well, then it becomes much easier to understand the latest paper out of NIPS and then say, oh, this is how they did it. Uh, so let me implement it or let me modify uh, my own algorithm to make it better. The, the, the issue in machine learning is using a library to build a system quickly gets you only up to f some level of accuracy. It's easy to get to that accuracy, let's say 50% and 60%. But additional 10% is incredibly hard. Wow. So you really need to know the fundamentals to be able to tweak the equation if needed or tweak the parameters in a way that makes the uh, improvement possible. So to get that 10%, extra 10%, you need to understand fundamentals. The additional 10% is even harder. So it gets harder and harder and harder. Wow. Um, uh, I mean, for some businesses, you may not need 99% mm. accuracy, mm. depending mm. on the thing that you're building. But, but I think for a lot of the uh, automated systems, you need quite a high, ac highly accurate system. Mm. And if you're going to build a business out of the machine learning system that you're going to build, then you need to be even more aware on how accurate the system needs to be for it to be and a viable right. business model. Right. right. So computer vision systems these days are quite accurate on many things. Uh, compute, uh, like language dialogue systems are probably not as accurate. So you need to sort of know uh, what's the 
what is possible and what is not. And based on that, uh, try to do the business side of things. Uh, so I've I've built a framework called uh, AIDR. I could just talk uh, one sure. minute about yeah, it. Yeah, talk about it. Uh, that could potentially help if you're trying to build a machine learning system and potentially a business out of it. AIDR stands for algorithm for A, I for impact, D for data, and R for recurrence. Okay. AIDR. What that means is, if you're gonna thinking of building a product, first see if it's feasible from all these four aspects. Got it. Is the algorithm viable to build the product that you're trying to build, right? And this, and is the current state of the research on the algorithm, is at a point where it's feasible? Like I was saying, mm. if you're if, if you're dreaming of building a product that can just talk like humans, then algorithms are not there yet, so mm. that's mm. not going to be possible. Mm. Um, but you know, a movie or tone down version of a question answering system is probably be feasible. So algorithm viability is important. Obviously, if you're trying to build a business, you need to think from the impact side and ROI side. Mm. Mainly, it's going to generate more revenue mm. or it's going to reduce cost for clients. Mm -hmm. right? Bottom line. Bottom line. Um, D stands for data. Uh, and data is not just how much data I have, but uh, what kind of data is available, what, is, what kind of tools is required to process that data. And plus, this notion of does the data get generated when the product you build gets used. What that means is, is there a notion of data automatically being generated that could be fed back into the system right. so when the product gets used more and more? Right. So it's a so virtuous cycle. It's a virtuous cycle <clears throat> like where there's the self-learning within the machine can happen more. Mm -hmm. so that you don't have to constantly label and feed the data. Mm -hmm. And the last one is what I call recurrence. Uh, in, so this is AIDR, right? Mm -hmm. And what that, by that, what I mean is, um, if you're going to build something to automate something, right, is that task gets done frequently enough to the user that it's valuable, yeah. right? So for example... Frequency of... Frequency, right? Yeah. So like, uh, if you're going to, uh, let's say, build a system that does automation, something to do with, let's say, email, you use email all the time. Mm -hmm. So even a minor little bit of tweak, uh, tweak that you can, if you, can, you can create on the efficiency side on being able to automatically respond, right, to the Google automatic response right. that's happening. That's useful and people use right. it. Uh, but if you are going to build a system that people use once a month, once a year, or like you know something <laughs> like that, right? Like, then it probably creates less of a value. Yeah, yeah. So you need to think from that perspective yeah. as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's that's your model. That's that's great. That's model. something to think about. So why why should somebody, you know, why should somebody take the the Jenga Fuse Machines course? What's why, you know? Because. Uh, you would have one of the best learning experience on uh, machine learning and be able to learn the four core fundamental courses that makes you uh, AI ready uh, or be able to code different kinds of machine learning systems. You learn machine learning as core course, mm -hmm. the deep learning course, mm -hmm. uh, uh, computer vision, and natural language processing. And we focus only on four core courses, mm. uh, unlike some of the, the online learning platforms where you can pretty much learn everything out there. Even when you search for machine learning, there's like 50, 50 courses in machine learning. Right. 
uh, and so forth. Uh, one thing we have strategically done is we don't do, we don't want to be a platform where you can learn pretty much anything. We're just focused on machine learning, and within machine learning, uh, we have basically realized that if you learn these four fundamental courses, you're pretty much set to be able to do a lot of stuff. And what can you get from, if I come out on the other end, what's the opportunity? So the opportunity is uh, you get a micro degree, that's what we call it. It's mm -hmm. not a graduated degree, mm -hmm. uh, it's a trademark from Fuse Machines. Mm -hmm. But uh, it basically certifies that you know these four core courses very well. Okay. As good as anybody uh, graduating from uh, really good universities in the U.S., mm -hmm. right, mm -hmm. or, or around the world. Mm -hmm. uh, and also, there's potential for job opportunities. Mm -hmm. Like I said, uh, people who graduate, the students who graduate from this program, especially really good ones, uh, and you are able to score at the high marks, you potentially have job opportunity with Fuse Machines. Uh, and potentially with other companies. Other companies. Well. The 250,000 jobs out there, right? There's so many jobs out right, there, right? right. So there's, there's that's, so much in demand. That, that's great. Um, I guess one other question I, I wanted to ask you. I guess what is the, uh, or maybe on the US side, benchmarking that as a market, what is the average value for uh, machine, you know, AI engineer right now? Like, what's the... So, I mean, engineers... Just engineers, software engineers in general are very expensive. Right, right, right. right. Uh, in in the U.S., it 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 ranges quite a bit. It does, yeah. But especially senior engineers, all 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 in six figures, right? right. Uh, and being a machine learning engineer is additional, uh, probably one third more on the salary, wow. or at least uh, to one fourth more on the salary. So right. it, it's a it's a wide range, uh, but it's. What's the, what's the highest you've seen just for engineer, not like somebody in, and what's what's that range if you if you could any? I mean, high, on the high end, it's it's I have seen uh, some colleagues being offered seven figures as well. <laughs> seven figures, <laughs> yes, dollars, dollars. I've seen that, uh, <laughs> uh, and then um, uh, on the the ones who have just graduated. Uh, uh, from the perspective of uh, masters with machine learning, I've seen s students getting offers anywhere between 150 to 250, uh, 300 and more or so. Thousand US dollars. Thousand US dollars. And so <clears throat> the micro degree, I know you guys have placed some people through who've come through your program, the fellowship. Have you been able to actually yeah, see so, some of the results from that? Uh, so some of our fellows uh, from New York, so th they've landed at some of these companies. Like uh, I think one of them is at Facebook, one of them is at Intel, and so forth, uh, where they work full time and they are employees of Facebook and mm. Intel and so forth. Mm. Uh, Commanding those salaries. So basically, yeah. you come out of this program, you are very valuable. You are very valuable. To a high demand market. You are, you are very valuable for a high demand market. Cool. Uh, uh, and you could command the salary, especially if you are in the US itself, mm -hmm. uh, physically. What about remote work? Is that, I know that's an opening up market right now. It's an opening up market, and right. that's sort of the, the service model that we are working on as well. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of opportunities there right. as well. Right. Uh, you right. might, I mean, remotely you won't. Probably some of these companies uh, they may not do direct hires right. or they may do local hires. Right. But like I think there's few of the large Fortune 500 companies in Nairobi, Nairobi itself, yeah. Yeah. right? And mm -hmm. so you could potentially got jobs, jobs there, here, yeah. which I think is probably companies who are looking to actually build out their exactly. own programs uh, and so forth. Yeah.
great. Listen, I mean, we could go on for days. <laughs> this is a thank you. I'm so excited to have to have had this opportunity to actually sit down with you after we connected like two, three months ago. But I guess our, stars, our stars were aligned that this was yeah. going to happen. Yeah. And yeah. really excited about the future. So I know you guys are going on safari. You're going to the Mara. Uh, yeah. Experience yeah. the migration. Yeah. Good. I've Ex heard amazing things about it. Yeah. Uh, I've looked at all the documentary videos as well. <laughs> Should be a great experience. Should be a great experience. Yeah. Uh, so I'm looking forward to it very, very much. Uh, awesome. Especially now that the Lion King is out and back into that mode. I said my daughter see the Lion King. Yeah. And, yeah. It was a wonderful experience. Uh, so yeah, we'll, we'll very much looking forward to it. Awesome. Sounds good. Hi, right, Samir. Thank you, uh, so thank you so much for coming through. I know we're going to be hosting you for what we, our past speaker series on August 9th yeah. um, at uh, one of our, I guess we'll call them like friends and partners, M-Survey. is uh, a, a local startup that are doing amazing things. And I can't wait for you to actually meet the founders and some of the folks on, this, on, the, on the staff and that team. So uh, M-Survey, on August 9th, we're going to be hosting Samir for a fireside chat um, so if you have an interest in actually meeting a bona fide, you know, top-notch AI professional, this is an opportunity for you to come and ask questions, uh, you know, uh, and, and kind of get your, you know, uh, get a sense of how, where the world is in terms of this, uh, this space. So August 9th, 6 p.m. at M-Survey, Kinderoma Road, Pine Tree Plaza. Um, that's where this, the, the next event is going to be with Samir. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. All right. Good stuff, but that's great. Yeah. Yeah, I think we... How long was that? I think one hour 15. Oh, wow. Yeah. It was good.